the sweet seven of our ten-week series. Uh, and this, I think, is probably the first one which is very specifically on the plan, uh, as opposed to the more general issues of urban and transport, etc. Uh, and Alan Evans uh, for University of Reading. So I think I'm going for. Since we're both postgrads, indeed, that is so correct. 15 years. Yeah, 15 odd years. years. And Alan Monks was, uh, for a while, was caught uh, on his course from our And there's uh, a very, very knowledgeable person about the economics of planning. And which is to talk today about planning and fuel use. And I'm sure it'll be a very critical person. Yeah, actually the, the bit of my CV that you didn't mention is that of course that I, when I first started out, and it's kind of relevant to what I'm going to talk about, how I get to what I'm talking about, uh, I spent five years training to be an accountant as an article clerk doing audits. So doing an, being an audit clerk for five and a half years kind of gives you a sort of cynical view about evidence. Evidence has to be checked. You know, so we actually do a lot of, of, of um, what's called um, incomplete records. So you know, you go down to the farm, and uh, the, the farmer would produce the box or something. And you start doing the doing the pet, doing the accounts, and then you say, "What's this two hundred and three pounds sixteen shillings and tons for?" So he say, "Oh, it's for the signaling. Yeah, it, the invoice is in the drawer. I'll go and get it for you." So you say, you know, you learn. Don't go and get it from it. Tell me where it is, because you never know what else you'll find in the drawer that you need apart from that invoice. So there's this sort of. I've only realised very recently this early training had influenced the way my attitude towards data, a certain critical uh, attitude. Now this started off as a very simple uh, survey, and it um, I sort of got waylaid, and you'll discover how uh, very quickly. Uh, which leads to the subtitle, Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics. Um, uh, not trying to attribute the bit of questionable as you I did think of actually another version, which was, a nation will believe a big lie more than a small lie. And I thought that was quite relevant too. Then I, I realised attributing something to Adolf Hitler was, you know, it was kind of insulting. You can put it to Mark Twain, but quotes are up in Gregorian things. Hitler, it's uh, taken a bit too far. So, okay. Well, we're talking about this land use planning, fuel use, and CO2 emissions. And it seems to me that the planning view has been planning deals with externalities, looking at it from an economic point of view. CO2 emission is an externality, therefore, planning can deal with it. All we have to do is leave things like CO2 emissions, etc., fuel use, uh, to planning, because that's what planning deals with. Uh, and I wrote a paper about this. Um, some 15 years ago, called Dr. Pangloss Finds His Profession. Dr. Pangloss was uh, Condé's tutor in Voltaire's Condé and believed that everything was for the best in the best of all possible, possible worlds. So, you know, we, we have noses to put spectacles on them, legs so we can put britches on them. So, and so what we found was that in the Planning Policy Guidance, which came out after that time, oh, what we need is simply increased density, but we can't wait for working towards that. And we have green belts and countryside protection, so all this for the best and the best of all possible planning worlds, and we don't actually have to do anything. But the whole piece was sort of saying, well, we've got exactly the right planning controls uh, for this, and you know, what we can just do is ensure that we build on high, high density on brownfield sites. 
All the evidence that you need to justify this view is contained in the figure by Newman and Kenworthy, which shows gasoline use per capita versus urban density for cities around the world in 1980. And Newman and Kenworthy are a couple of Australians on the west coast of Australia now, in Perth, and they spend about 10 years collecting all this data, and it's regarded as the, the authority on this uh, subject. That's the figure that they show. Uh, sorry for the slight tilt, my scanner didn't work quite. Um, but anyway, this is gasoline use per capita versus urban density in million joules per capita, I think. Um, the two relevant ones are obviously London, which is down here in Munich, just there. And that's about 12,500 million joules per, per average per capita. And the other one I actually want you to note is Toronto, which is up there with about 35,000 uh, million joules, MJ. Okay, so just make a, make a note of those. Um, now, suspicious economists like me will think that, um, actually even geographers like you, will think that maybe there's something odd about this. And um, isn't, isn't it essentially price and income differences rather than different differences in density? So Newman and Kenworthy then publish another graph uh, which shows the same relationship adjusted to US income via the vehicle efficiencies and gasoline prices in 1980. Uh, now what you notice is London here has gone up from 12,500 to about 15,000 and Toronto is about 30,000. Um, so Toronto is actually, sorry, I'm sorry, I pointed at that. But it's Toronto was about there and is now here. London was here about 12,500 and now it's at 15,000. So but this is slightly odd because they say they've adjusted it using certain elasticities. They've got their price elasticity of minus one in there. And they stress how generous they are with the elasticities. And an income elasticity of you know, 0.6, um, so simply a 20% increase in fuel use in London does seem slightly odd, particularly when you know that the price, US prices at that time were one third of UK prices, and incomes were 60% higher. You know, if you reduce prices by two thirds and incomes rise by 60%, and your fuel use only goes up by 20%, there seems to be something, 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 possibly somewhere wrong. And we're more familiar with this figure uh, because this is the way it appears in Roger's report. So there we have Toronto, uh, whereas London's somewhere down here. Um, and that, that appears in the Rogers report in that form, redrawn. And it also appears in the planning policy guidance in 2000 in that form. And uh, it also appears actually in, in Kate Barker's report, um, but with a certain amount of, well, I suppose this is what they're saying, but so I suppose possibly we might actually believe it. Kate is, is not, uh, was rather more suspicious of it than Rogers or then the uh, ODPM. So, an even more suspicious economist like me, and one who's done like his auditing training, uh, might wonder what's happening if the gasoline consumption only goes up from 20%, uh, if, uh, you know, if, as I've said, reduce prices by two thirds and increased incomes. That does seem rather odd. The exact figure isn't given. They only give averages for, for most things, and much of the data actually isn't given. Uh, but London's, London's average income then increases from just under $5,000 to $8,000, and 
average for US sisters, sissies by 60% and fuel prices dropped by 70% to 23.6 cents per litre. So there's something odd somewhere. Well, maybe it's a fall in fuel efficiency. Um, so you know, the fuel efficiency uh, from 10.7 litres per 100 kilometres um, to the US average of 15.3. So you know, the fuel use is much higher because the Americans were driving much bigger cars at that time. But on the other hand, Newman and Kenworthy say that in the long run, of course, um, fuel, fuel efficiency doesn't actually matter because everyone will adjust in the long run the cars they drive to the price of, of fuel. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a fuel use, like you said, questions of fuel efficiency is relevant to short run changes but not to long run. And I think we can kind of agree on that. So, right, in the short run, the sort of vehicles which already exist are important, but in the long run, people will adjust to the fuel <coughs> price in the, in the cars that they buy, as I've just said. Now, the problem, is that just, as I've also said, is that they only give average, and they only give figures for, only for one city. The Canadian city of Toronto, it's slightly to my surprise, they don't wrap it in as North American cities, but Toronto is in there uh, separately. Um, and so, we actually know something slightly more about Toronto than we do about the others. So there, the incomes would rise from $7,500 to $8,000. So incomes would rise by 7%. And fuel charge prices would be you know, 23.5 to 23.6 cents per litre. So less than half percent change. And fuel efficiency would improve because actually Canadians apparently drove less fuel efficient cars uh, in 1980 than, than the Americans. Uh, by 6%, but you know, in the long run that works itself out. So what we have is that, according to Newman and Kenworthy, these changes should result in a fall in consumption from the 35,000 million, million joules in 1980 to 30,000 million joules in the short run and 26,000 in the long run. So it's a fall of 14% in the short run and a 25% in the long run. Now there is no way that those figures stack up. If you, you've got a five, what is it, five percent income increase in incomes and, and fuel use falls, uh, you know, this is this is crazy. Um, and the other thing is, of course, that what we do do know is that if you remember, I pointed out that the um, the the uh, consumption per capita in the Toronto was a, in that diagram which shows adjusted prices was about 30,000. In other words, when it says in that diagram, even in Newman and Kenworthy's own evidence that this is adjusted to, for, to US incomes and prices, it's only short-run adjusted. Even on their own statements, it's only short-run adjusted. And, uh, it's not long-run adjusted. So uh, we have, uh, well, what shall we say? So is it misleading, deliberate, accidental? Um, they, I have to say the reviewer of um, their book um, in the Journal American Planning Association um, described the, the second half of the book, which is the book that contains all the data, it's four pages of data for every city, for the 36 cities, um, it says, you know, we should all be grateful for the data that's been collected. 
On the other hand, the first half of the book is basically a work of propaganda for, uh, I mean, the word propaganda is actually used um, for, for high identities and they seem you know, totally concerned with persuading people that it's high identities. So um, what I'm finding is, well, but it's a fabrication uh, on this evidence at, at best and the question is what's, um, what happened during the fabrication uh, because you know, there's no way an increase of incomes in 6% for Toronto can fall, cause a 25% fall in consumption uh, well the, the one explanation is and I suspect it's the true one a research assistant got paid by them to create the data and he collected the money and he put the points on the diagram and they, they were exactly where they wanted them to be and they said so they didn't check them he collected the money, they were happy, everybody was happy that's it. Now, because and this is probably true, right? I mean, the second reason I think is that if they were going to fabricate the data completely they should have fabricated the data in the second half of the book you know, you, you could have started off with different figures. Who the hell was able to check them? And if anyone at some point, you know, from their city checked them, they'd say, they could write back and say, oh, sorry, there was an error with, with, that, with, that, with that figure for Toronto or Perth or something. Um, so, doing the fabrication as that, in the way that it appears to have been done, is, you know, you're always lovable that's frankly someone like me stumbling across the fact that it's absolutely and, and I haven't been in contact with you with Kenwood because I have to get all my ducks absolutely in line before I do but because I'm kind of aware I'm going to wreck their reputation and, and, and uh, it's kind of difficult to, to well anyway what's the, what's the other possibility uh, well the same possibility is that they give really rather too much detail they emphasize how generous their elasticity are they can be as generous as they like because they're not actually use, using them you know, so and they're very accurate some things uh, incomes in US cities they, uh, they alter the average incomes in US cities given the, the, the price of things in different US cities so they give different income levels for, U, for US cities and some, but in, in, in the case of German cities they don't the, the German incomes are exactly the same for Hamburg, West Berlin, uh, Munich uh, or London simply gets the average in UK income which is we all know on um, something of one estimate. So, you know, there's a lot of detail somewhere in there and how, how, how everything is so accurate, but then, you know, other things, if you look at it a bit closer, uh, you know, is it the conjurer's chatter, you know, to mislead? What's going on? So, what would their figure look like if, they, if you re recalculate it the way that they said they had done it with price elasticity of minus one, income elasticity of 0.6? And I've done that for the Australian and European cities, and the relationship with fuel use and density is a lot less clear. Sorry, where is it? This, uh, this one is supposed to be in here somewhere. There, that's right. Um, so this, I haven't, I haven't, I'll come back to this, but that's what it looks like, pretty calculated. Um, it's a lot messier. By the way, um, as a matter of interest, all you econometricians, um, you realise this isn't a fitted line. You know, if, you know, all your econometricians all who use box and cox techniques to make absolutely sure that you get absolutely the right curvy, 
what does it matter what you do? Just just put in the line where you think it ought to be. You know, I mean that's much more persuasive. Um, that, that, it's just something, it's, I suddenly realised this, and so sometime afterwards, that actually there, there was no equation for it. It was just there, and um, yeah, it just there. Uh, so there are other problems with the data. Um, right, I've excluded Moscow because in 1980. It was a communist, you know, the communist state, and saying that if prices were reduced, you know, slightly that nuts, you know, if prices weren't going to be reduced. Presumably, you've got a fuel allocation, and where from depending on where you lived or whatever. But you know, since it's not a capitalist state, not working on price elasticities and income elasticities, doing a recalculation seems slightly crazy. The same thing. Um, I actually visited Hong Kong in 1982, um, so I have a certain uh, knowledge of it. Um, that's a very small area. You couldn't actually travel very far because you could you know, travel to the new territories, but up to the border, and that was it. And I think they only recently got a tunnel under the harbour from Victoria Island to uh, Kowloon. So the fact that fuel use was pretty low in Hong Kong can be explained by other things, but than the fact that it's a very high density. And Singapore, which I'd also visited a few years before, uh, is an island state with only one road out to Johor, so you also can't travel very far if you've got a car there. So it's a kind of it's slightly exceptional, um, and so I haven't actually done the re recalculation. So that's what we get, which the three which I haven't actually recalculated. So, but uh, shortly, uh, about the late 1997, I think, we did the calculations and it was published. And uh, Ian did the using the raw data and, and actually used regression analysis. And uh, what you got was an equation which is just um, fuel use as a function of density, and you get an R squared of 0.78. Uh, and the coefficient on density is 0.7. But if you put in fuel use and incomes, what you get is uh, 0.23. And since they're uh, natural logs, that's actually an elasticity uh, on density, uh, 0.75 on price, and 0.25 on income. Um, and price is clearly the most significant factor. Um, and both the elasticity is calculated. Uh, obviously, it's uh, 0.75, that's minus 0.75, that's less than the one which uh, Newman and Kenworthy sort of said was their general estimate of elasticity, which they didn't use, of course. And as this is also lower than their 0.6. Uh, so that um, would seem to be uh, what we can get out of the data on the assumption that, of course, the original data is actually accurate. Um, and the regression does show density to be quite important. But there's, um, there are other problems with the Newman and Kenworthy data. A guy called Australian called Ray Brindle pointed this out fairly soon after it was published, which is that they use SNSAs in the states. And SNSAs are a statistical construct which are intended to include the whole of an urban agglomeration. And since it's statisticians concerned with it, the area is much larger because they don't really care. They just want to include the population. They're not really concerned about whether they include too much land. But the result is, of course, that the average density of the SNSAs in their figures are rather lower than they would be if you just was the area covered by the conurbation um, and the population of the conurbation. On the other hand, with Europe, they use political areas, which are smaller. So they use the figures for the greater county of Greater London, 
which is less than was defined as the accommodation of London, back Greater London back in about, was it 1950, I think it was designated. And we all know that various conservative boroughs managed to get out of being in the Greater London, County Greater London. And because it was being put through by a Labour administration, they were quite happy to let Eastshire and Coach get out because that made it much more sure that it was going to be a, a Labour control most of the time. Um, so it uh, includes some high income parts. And so what you have in, the, in, 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 in London or um, other European cities is actually the densities are rather higher, and in the American cities that they're rather lower than they actually should be. So what you uh, are doing is creating an elasticity which is rather higher than you might expect. So, and the other fact that, 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 that can, they're, they're really, I don't know the word disdain, they really are totally unconcerned. I've had this book, my bedside table, practically for most of the last year, so I, I know it pretty well by heart. But their you know, concern is with parameters in the direct control of physical and transport planners, but they're not concerned with economic variables. And so the price of travel is, is not in there. Um, actually, the, the data for, for London was 1980, which is, of course, the year Fair's Fair started. And uh, so I'm not quite sure whether it was before it actually started or, the, or after it started. Um, but anyway, um, whether or not it was, in other, in other European countries, they, they were uh, subsidising public transport. But you know, again, uh, they, you and know, Ken were unconcerned with this sort of thing. So the coefficient of density in the Engels' equation is very much an upper estimate. You know, he says it's 0.26, and um, Peter Hall did a calculation in 2001 that doubling density would reduce fuel use by 15%, so that would be you know, about 4.15. So it's about the same sort of um, estimate, um, rather lower than the 0.26. Of course, given that um, Ian's price elasticity is 0.76, you can achieve the same, you can either rebuild London, and it would take about a century and double the density, and that would reduce fuel use by 15%. Or you could raise the price of fuel by 20%, and about six or seven years later, you could have reduction down to reduction by 15%. So I have no doubt, from a policy point of view, uh, and then by a cost point of view, which would seem the more efficient process. But it's not actually something that you and Ken were really actually interested in. Okay. Um, sorry, do, so I'm moving on. From you and Kenworthy, but does anyone want to ask any questions on that up to now? <laughs> no? Okay. Right. Well, um, this is this is more recent uh, publications. Um, is higher density always good? And it's um, study from Norway and also from Dublin and the Netherlands as to not just fuel use. Um, of people travelling around within the city, um, but the study in, in, in of, the, of Oslo indicated that the higher the density, the more people actually wanted to get away from the place. So the uh, diagram looks like that. Uh, that's uh, energy use for everyday travel, and that's that curve, and you can see it falls quite sharply as housing density increases. But on the other hand, this is long level time travelled by plane, and as you can see, as the density increases, so that increases quite sharply. Uh, in other words, if you're living at high density, you come 
you know, you want to get away. Um, and so what it looks like actually is that and there's a rather shallow low at about uh, um, six, 60 dwellings per hectare um, are minimum uh, the PDG Actually, comment also that the authors was that um, actually, if you had a garden, you travelled away even less. So, what, what houses with gardens are likely to, you know, those anyone here with a garden, you understand precisely why that is because you've always got things to do. Speaking to me, in the garden, which stops you from getting out away. So, uh, the uh, that is also another factor, but of course. With, if you're simply taking into account higher densities, the higher densities and the exclusion of gardens uh, is a quote good thing. Now, uh, British planning policy has been that what we want to do is build a high density on brownfield sites and constrain settlements by use of grain belts, etc. Now, the trouble with this is that it results in dispersion and high fuel use. Uh, the, the green belts uh, ana analysis this is, uh, is you know distance from the distance from the centre rent gradient A, a B uh, agricultural value out away from the urban area green belt built put in between D1 and D2 uh, urban expansion continues incomes increase etc etc so the new uh, rent value uh, land value gradient goes up to CD. Uh, but this development isn't allowed to occur, so prices rise uh, and what you finish up with is a new higher land value gradient EFGH and the development occurs the other side of the green belt with higher prices and higher densities and uh, because of the higher prices. So uh, the stated aims of green belts, as we all know, I'm sure, is to check out the small Can I ask you um, what the data is from that previous chart? It seems to be a sort of flown in. So like which which one are we going from? This one. Yes. Oh, it's a standard model. Standard. You'll find it in um, Evans on <laughs> residential location, 1973. Um, that's not data, it's theory. It's theory, it's not this. Right, okay. Um, it's, I mean, it's, sorry, my, my thesis. Sorry, I've given it away when we were both PhD <laughs> students now. But uh, <laughs> the, um, the, um, I, it's, it's actually in, uh, one of the last chapters in the book because um, I think um, Peter Hall, who was my external examiner, suggested that I should put some, some planning application in to do with um, because I, what I was doing was an analysis of. Uh, residential location in cities, which in, you know, in, basically, um, you know, you have a, a land value gradient of that kind, and um, so land values tend to fall with distance from the centre, um, and then you can explain given um, income elasticities, etc., and the amount of space that people want. Why, you know, people with families will live out towards the edge because they want more space. And it depends on the income elasticity. Sometimes the rich will want to live near the centre, and sometimes they'll live even further out, etc., etc. Um, but so, um, basically, starting off from what would be regarded as the standard 
uh, e urban economics analysis, which would be a, a land value gradient here, which would run up and come down towards agricultural value at the edge in the absence of any planning constraints, which would be true in most American cities. Would have been true. Uh, so, okay, we, so we've. Uh, going so right, yeah, they say the aims of green belts in planning terms are checking over the sprawl, safeguarding guarding the surrounding countryside, preventing towns merging, preserving the character of historic towns assisting in the new generation. And they were originally an outcome of Greater London plan towards very narrow, that's basically for recreation <coughs> of the people in the towns. Um, there isn't anything now in the aims of green belts, they're just uh, recreation is being dropped from out. <coughs> If, as I do, you go for walks in the London Green Belt almost every weekend, you will actually find that it is for recreation. It's for recreation of a ridge. And you see, if you walk through London's Green Belt, northwestern segment, you will see uh, more horses um, occupying a very large number. I think I've seen two herds of cows and one uh, sheep, and I've seen God knows how many horses. I went golf courses. Um, <coughs> what you won't see is very much agriculture. But, uh, which isn't, of course, because then the agriculture is not there either. But uh, <coughs> there isn't anything about recreation, but that's what they're being used for. It's possibly why the Telegraph Tories are so keen to preserve green belts. You'd have to, have to drive farther to ride the horse, wouldn't you? Can't, can't allow these oiks out of the country. <laughs> so, in economic terms, if those are the aims, what we should get is. Higher land and property values in the container of an area, and if it's if it's working to to prevent expansion, and if the demand is high enough, what you'll get is commuting across the green belt, and you'll get development on the other side of the green belt, and actually higher property values on the edge of the green belt, and infill and higher density development in the container of an area. In other words, the argument about uh, regeneration, actually in economic terms, depends on the fact that. Uh, prices are now higher, so it becomes worthwhile uh, developing into a higher density or developing sites which are underused, so you get regeneration. This is kind of not spelled out in planning documents, but from an economist's point of view. Well, okay, we're, what we're keen on is brownfield sites. Does it make sense to build at high density in the countryside on brownfield sites? If, you know, um, building a high density brownfield site in the countryside if what we're actually trying to do um, is re reduce fuel use. So this, this one I came across, it's an old cottage hospital site five miles west of Reading near Bradfield. It's absolutely out in the country. But it ticks, as Paul Cheshire put it, the right boxes. It's a brownfield site and it's got a bus route and so what else do you need? There's a, there's a bus, it stops there well, 800 metres down the road in once an hour, but it's on a bus route, and so um, and it's a brownfield site, um, so it's got about 28 houses on Not expensive houses, I have not the slightest doubt that no one except a possible cleaning lady uses the bus to get anywhere. Um, that's actually pre-2000, that was in 1997, so I went out and checked it when it was built. The other um, sort of piece of evidence is um, containing around uh, Oxford. This is St. Uh, Oxford Brooks University a few years ago. Uh, Oxfordshire at that point in the, in the 90s 
said that new housing would be outside Oxford and smaller towns, Bister, Banbury, Bidcock and Whitney. Uh, and these towns had, had good public transport, and so that's where the development should be. Oxford should be protected by its green belt, etc. The result actually was that everyone, the, the guys at Oxford Brooks, did a survey of people who moved into this new housing in the areas with good public transport, and without exception, they used um, their cars more to get to work after they moved to the other side of the Oxford Green Belt than they had before to get to work. Um, I think the extreme was Dipcot, which was 70% used their cars with, to get to work before, and 98% used their cars to get to work after. Um, Kidlington, the, the new housing was adjacent to Oxford and Kidlington, which was actually inside the Oxford Green Belt, when 54% used their cars to get to work from Kidlington before, and 50 from wherever they were, and 54% used their car afterwards. So it actually, housing within the Green Belt didn't actually result in more car use, it was the housing out of the smaller towns which resulted in more car use. Um, this is from a paper by, I think it's Peter Dooley, um, um, on in land use policy on uh, recently on new, new housing in England. And so, I'm slightly astonished by this. About 300, there were five and a half a million houses between 2000 and 2004, um, and 300,000 were in urban areas, but 200,000 were in rural areas, in large part being uh, conversions and infill in villages. So two, you know, two fifths, 40% of the new housing. Uh, was actually being sort of scattered around the countryside in, in, uh, in small pockets. I'm slightly amazed by this statistic, but that's, I think he's using, I can't remember, I think he uses satellite imagery. So, uh, what? What was his definition of the rural I, I can't, I can't remember. Um, I think it's administrative, it would uh, be, it would include a large number of Yeah, okay. It's, um, because it, it, it was, it was arguments that there were more, there was more housing provided out in these rural areas than was provided actually in town centres. So although all the publicity was about sort of big lots of flats in the town centres, actually um, you know, there was equal number of houses, houses were being built out in, in sort of rural areas, which was kind of su surprising. Presumably on brownfield sites. Well, you can do infill. Yes, gardens as well. Yes, yes. Do you watch, by the way, watch BBC Two with Flanders? No? Yeah. It's very good. You should. BBC Two, that's right. BBC Two, Thursdays, 8 o'clock, the Flanders. You know, it's, uh, it's worth watching. The British at their worst or best, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> So, anyway, I'm, near, I'm near, nearly closing. The US evidence is, there's a recent paper, that policies of containment, uh, where, cont where containment policies are, of course, fuel use is greater, because what happens is people go from one contained area to the other, um, and uh, it, so it's, instead of being you know, grouped together, what you get is increased, is increased, germ, increased fuel use. So what uh, the conclusion is that the policy that we have are justified by reference to global sustainability, sustainability um, but that the evidence for these policies reducing fuel use and emissions is at best non-existent, if not fabricated. And in my view, there is evidence that they worsen the situation. That is, we have a policy which actually increases fuel use and uh, results in greater CO2 emissions than we need have. So we know that the British policy is there for other reasons. Uh, some people, um, and power, think that, for example, this, this uh, 
And as he feels that high densities are just good in, in and of themselves, that people really you know, should learn to like high densities because it's good for them. Uh, some people just want to protect the countryside, and so people like uh, Simon Jenkins, who will certainly uh, produce any exaggerated responses to the defense of the countryside. Uh, was it? What is it? Like? It is general. Uh, it, 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 was it? Uh, the British use of urban land more wasteful than any other country in Western Europe. So I wait, 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 wait to point out to it that that wasn't actually true. Uh, the Robin Vestman demonstrated actually they were almost the most efficient uh, in Western Europe um, many years ago. So, so the next time it came in last week was, it is generally agreed that the British use... <laughs> <laughs> I was generally agreed by people who don't know anything about the <laughs> So can we have a little honesty? Thank you. Thank you very much. Since there's another political line on this, which is that um, density isn't the answer, but fuel price is the answer. Mm. Nobody's got the, the so yeah. no politician has got the balls to actually. Well, they have actually. I mean, they were they were doing it. They have been Sorry, increasing. They exactly were. the point. I mean, Gordon Brown. Yeah, but he did increase it. Yeah. Yeah. Stayed, he kept on. He kept every year. He, he, he said, "I'm going to give another holiday this year." So yeah, the absolutely. But in another sense, actually, the fuel price has increased. I, I passed to, what is it, 139.9 at the moment, so I walked down the road, I think. Um, so, uh, and in a sense, the price, the price increase has been occurred anyway. Um, but, it's a, but it seems to me that anything you do which will have the effect of reducing emissions is going to be unpopular. Right? Yeah. Um, the great thing about density-based policy you don't actually do anything. Um, it doesn't actually have any bite. We don't do anything tomorrow. You do you go know, with 30 years? Yes, but most, but you don't, but most of the time, you just retreat from, from the status policy. So it's, it's a nice, easy option. But this, there is. Well, so if you increase the price, you increase the price, and that's, that's it. One of the papers, I haven't referred to it, but um, which Kate Barker, I think, refers to, along with your, yours and others, is, is a study. Oh, it's, it's some Israelis who use the Newman and Kenworthy data, right? Um, but disaggregating, and it's a, it's some, I can't remember, it's some fancy econometric technique. And what they're arguing is that actually it, it depends where you're building. But if you build, um, and it's this question of, uh, if you build high density out in the suburbs, you've got absolutely no reason to suppose that they're actually going to use their cars or, or go by public transport into the centre. And actually, if it's constructed out, out on, on, on the suburbs, then actually what actually apparently occurs is a lot of circumferential travel. So you, it depends where your high density is. Yeah, high density in the centre of London, people are likely to pay a high amount and then move and work there. But on the other hand, if you've got as near me out of Harrow, a block of flats with 100 flats in, then everybody drives out in the morning and goes north, south, east, and west. Um, not necessarily, as was discussed at ad nauseam at the planning inquiry, um, walking uh, half a mile to the, to the uh, tube down the road and then spending an hour to get into central London. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, is, is it data on fuel use, just private cars? 
works at all. It's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be all fuel use, yes. The, um, the new the camera data, yes. It's all, all fuel use for travel. Mm -hmm. So what did the Netherlands stuff say? You, you said what the Norwegians well, said, which um, is presumably at a given point in time, so income and distribution is just given. No, so to be absolutely honest, Oliver Harshwick found that paper, um, and I was over in Cloningham, um, actually last October, and I met the guy who wrote it, but I don't remember actually. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite happy when I gave a version of this in Cloningham. But, uh, but I mentioned it without, you know, um, <laughs> since it was his paper, but yeah. the actual details of it, I should actually get it right. Yes. Well, do, you, do you know what the breakdown is between the proportion of fuel which is used by private vehicles, let's just say, commuting, and that used by the trade vehicles, buses, uh, and all the other things which we see on London roads? It's, it's in the human and camera data. I think it's exact, well, they have to have got believe it. But, well, well you know, no, I actually, it would appear that, that you know, if that, as I said, if they were going to lie, they should have done it in the data because you couldn't check it. But if not, not the, you know, the fabrication which they actually did. Um, so I have to assume that you can, you know, that the data they decided, uh, they actually did collect. Um, and um, so I assume that, you know, that that's, that, well, that's the, that's the, that's the data for which the, the uh, reviewer and the JAPA said was, you know, we should all be grateful. So There are, and likely there to be long-term, if you like, time series data from inland revenue points, like sort of fuel depots and garage chains and so forth, in which you can actually do a run on London and just look at how uh, yeah, I tons don't of whatever have changed. Or, um, Grand Hampton and I did um, a study, which was st a statistical study of journeys into central London using the cord count, um, and um, which, because we had, uh, you know, I, I realised we had there was a 50-year run of data. A 50-year run of data in urban economics is just you know, too good a chance to miss. Um, and uh, um, the price of fuel was a rel relevant factor. So you know, things like the bus fares, price of fuel, um, train fares, etc. Um, and because when I mention fares fare, I can, in my mind, I've got this, it goes like this <laughs> in the consecutive years as to people travelling into London and, and, and usage. There's a, um, because it came in, then Bromley, if you remember, Bromley appealed yeah, and said it wasn't, it wasn't judicially you know, right, and so the judge said they, they had to was it consult? That's right. So, so they put the fares back up again, and then they consulted and they put them back down again. Uh, um, and so, there is a zigzag in in, in, in usage, um, but actual usage. Of, of, you know, so you've got that sort of data on uh, on sort of prices and um, and you know, journeys journeys to work, but but you might have the sort of data which. Newman and Kenworthy collect, say they collected. Um, I mean, the G, the GL, the Great London Economic, Economics Group, who I haven't heard from for some years, actually. Yeah, so about they're still around now. I'm off their name. It's a good. very useful for you, point, <laughs> one point of view study of the, uh, where people leave.
live by skill level than work in the same sort of way. No. Okay. I'll show it to you on the next Okay. Sorry, Paul's giving a paper that I've read in the last um, so, I mean, Newman and Kenworthy spend about <coughs> 10 years, normally, travelling around the world collecting all this data. Um, which is why the guy in JAPA said we should all be grateful because, you know, for all this, as Australians, they obviously like travelling so, um, opportunity to visit all these countries, that's useful. Um, but trying to get it, you know, I mean, they got it for one year, um, trying to get consecutive runs of that sort of data for, for you know, I mean, probably can be just about done for one city. I think maybe they could get data for GLC. But then, of course, the county of Greater London is less than the conversation of Greater London, um, and, and less than, considerably less than the function of the region. Yeah, I mean, Gleeson Khan got some stuff for Americans. It's yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. It's a time series of yeah. small, small, special units. Yeah. And it was in the USA collect this data. There are several other uh, new international databases across cities. Okay. At least which I've launched in the library. I can't remember, no, it's just So I think that uh, the data exists now to do something with this database, but nobody's actually shown any real interest in doing it. Yeah. Well, I was going to make you go ahead and ask any questions today. I'm going to ask a different question, which is uh, about the causal measure. When I see a, a scatter diagram, I always say which way does the causation go? And we've got a very good urban economics theory. It tells us that density is the X kind of price of fuel. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Uh, so, so density is the X kind of price of yes, yes, fuel. Yes, yes, uh, Rather than the cause of the price of fuel. Yes, yes. That's so you can work on the price of fuel and the impact on density, but it doesn't follow that you can work on density and the impact on the use of fuel. Price of fuel. Well, no, I mean, I'd I mean, accept the Newman and Kenworthy point of view that if you do increase densities in, in certain ways, this will affect the ah, use of fuel. It's not inconsistent with the effecting, but with reducing the use of fuel. But you've already given a lot of examples of where you get, for example, dits, high rise, outside in, you know, infill in villages and small towns where density is not associated with the production of fuel use, it's rather associated with. No, no, there, there, is, there is a classic which I... Whereas price is yeah. pretty uh, unidirectional, is it, on the use of fuel? Actually, yeah. the human and Kenworth, the, the urban form doesn't matter at all. No, no. So they take no yeah. account of where, where the houses are. Yeah. And so surely that... Or where the jobs are. I mean, implicit in, in most people's discussion of this, in general terms, is the understanding of your basic block that therefore the density is going to be in the centre and yeah. that that is therefore so that location and density are are, are together in people's minds rather than the idea they're that together but they're not in my my reading of this whole about city centre living, actually. actually. And so um, I, 
Um, but first, a demonstration that actually detached houses were still being constructed in Scotland in a way which it was impossible in England because of the, the density uh, of the price of detached houses in Manchester. Is no, actually, but, but, but I also found a classic because the, the, the person arguing was it was all about city centre living. And I actually found on the southern outskirts of Reading this, and I went and looked at this development, which is 2007. So it achieves the 30 dwellings per hectare. It has some detached houses in, they're three stories high, and it achieves it by having 30% of the dwellings in blocks of flats. So this is the extreme southern edge of, of Reading. It's just off the A329 end, so you're absolutely ideally located to get your car out and drive into London on the M, on the M4, um, which, as I drive out to give a lecture at 9 o'clock this morning at 8 o'clock, I notice on the other Coming across, coming from Reading to Maidenhead, more or less it stops somewhat at even at 8 o'clock in the morning because of everyone coming across the Green Belt uh, from Reading in order to get into work. Anyway. Um, um, yeah, so, so the law investigating the relationship between uh, density in one aspect of the environment, which is, I guess, carbon emissions, what about the relationship between density and biodiversity? Have you ever looked at that? I mean, is there any. Well, curious enough, um, there is some data on it. Because um, um, the pieces that I wrote with over the heart of the policy exchange, I mean, if you, well, um, go, you know, go into policyexchange.org.uk and unaffordable housing uh, was, um, was, was kind of very good thing. And I can't remember it's in that or another of the four, three others that we wrote from. But then, um, but then Oliver dug up the data, and yes, actually. Um, biodiversity is greatest in city suburbs. Oh, city suburbs. Uh, and in yeah, the city suburbs. Well, yeah, cities, but basically greater than in the countryside because with pesticides and insecticides, etc., actually it gets reduced. Whereas you know, if, you're out, if you're in the, in the suburbs, you've got to mm -hmm. all these foxes running around and expanded ecology. <laughs> And it did have 30 years ago. Trying to break up this group of three here. And I think one of, one of the issues about this question of density versus city centre or, or location in this context is that while we might very well accept the density argument. Actually, um, work by people like Helen Jarvis, who looked at the city centre story for Leeds, shows that uh, increasing density of population in the city centre actually increased the use of, uh, of transport, uh, increased fuel use, because people um, want to journey in all directions in this. As compared to living uh, a little in the inner suburbs. Yeah, Rachel's data, which was actually required, I brought her into the app, yeah. was um, a studies of, of people living in Leeds, actually. Right. And the interesting yeah. thing was that they weren't sort of, that none of them displayed any attachment to Leeds city centre. A high proportion of them had cars, anyway. And they all anticipated moving out to a, to a house as soon as you know, they had kids got so there, there was no sense that we got of the, oh yes the buzz of central city living we all want to live in flats which is the sort of, I mean, the, uh, 
I, when we were getting up from the we got up from the table, I had lunch with some very senior DOE planner about 10 years ago. And he said something about flats, and I said, you know, that they don't particularly watch anybody. He said, they're buying them, so they must want them. Well, yeah, okay, if there's nothing else available, nothing else being built, you'll buy a flat. But it doesn't seem to me that particularly case that people wanted them, but that was the plan. A very chief senior plan to you. Maybe that was the point about the relative crisis of different types of house in Manchester, that uh, there was a big increase in moving of flats in central Manchester, yeah. and the result was price of houses in central housing space in central Manchester fell relative to the people of the suburbs who were less. So a relative change in prices. Was that desirable or undesirable? Well, it's suggesting that there was a relative, there was a relative undersupply of all housing, but there was a relative oversupply of flats relative to demand. And did that allow large numbers of people to live and work in Well, so it wasn't Manchester. the positive of living in central Manchester, no, no. so much as that's where the houses were. Yeah, that's um, I mean, I think this is actually very interesting. One thing I do try, I teach a course planning for sustainable cities, and I always try to tell people is to beware of the simple solution. And I think that clearly the Newman and Kenworthy stuff was actually presented as the simple solution. Governments love simple solutions. It means you don't have to do anything nasty like raise a price that's actually going to really impact on your electorate and apparently. But turning the argument around slightly, I think one of the problems with the density thing is it is so believable. So believable. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, if you is. don't look at data, if you don't yes. look at numbers, it is so very believable. If you come from a North American context and move into somewhere like London, so a lot of students that are coming across, the first thing you note is that you use public transport because you can, because yes. it's there, and you know, the, it's far more simple than if you're living in northeast Texas where frankly you need a truck. Yeah. And it has to be a truck. It can't be a car because you know you look a little silly in a car. Really big truck. Yeah. Um, but to turn the question around a little bit, how about the idea of uh, density in terms of supporting public transport? Do we think public transport like a tube system, like a decent bus system is important? And does density in some way mean that you are able to have those services? Um, well, yes, um, clearly. Um, I mean, one of my lectures on planning, and it's a chapter in the book, is upon um, the way in which uh, we have plot ratio control, and which limited the height of buildings. And one of the first papers I was, was saying, yeah, but the result of that is that it spreads every, all the offices out and actually, you know, reduces uh, the. Whereas, sort of, when you're at Wall Street or the City of London, everyone walks around. Uh, you have well, we used to have messengers who transported stuff around, like you know, and the, the density is high enough to have public, you know, good public transport. I mean, with, with Jubilee on extension to Canary Wharf is. Um, Slightly not a good example of that because it was heavily subsidised. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I always, when I'm doing this, this that piece, I'm, I'm sort of arguing that actually the economists were the, were the first people saying this doesn't work in terms of you know, e e economics. And actually, in a sense, 
the, in terms of um, destinations, work destinations, sort of the, the planning thing has come towards the economic consensus that are actually, you know, high density is, is quite, quite good uh, in the sense that it's, 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 it's efficient. Uh, I mean, the evidence on um, prices is that, um, that office, office space is worth more the more other office spaces there is nearby. On the other hand, <coughs> the, price, the price of housing, the price is lower the more space there is of other houses there are around. Um, so you know, the, the externalities work in, in different ways, whether we're talking about you know, jobs or, 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 or houses or not residences. Um, and but you know in terms of obviously in terms of density um, uh, uh, allowing um, you know, better public use, I mean, this is disagreement. Um, on, it's on just that theme, um, I'm quite interested because you know it's quite well recognised that uh, to build houses, people live in them, they use their cars. Yeah. So there's been quite a trend among some regenerations, regeneration agencies to put in good public transport facilities, space for keeping a bicycle early on in the development. And Freiburg is an example of this. Where they put in a, a tram facility very early on uh, before the fact that anyone moved in. Is there any evidence that that's actually had some long term effect in terms of reducing carbon? No idea. Not Because that, you know, so I think actually the problem with this kind of debate is, is that it's quite theoretical. And I've trouble theories, I like to see practical examples. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's it kind of. Shows how it could work. The, 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 the trouble is that I'm, I guess you know you're, you're talking at a very micro level. Yeah. I'm not sure that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert at no. that sort of level. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the problem is I think what I'm gunning for is actually green belts and, and the way in which we have a policy of actually distributing development over the countryside yeah. and then saying it's high <coughs> density. So high density is good because it reduces fuel use. No, it bloody doesn't. If you stick it out, you know, five miles from anywhere in the countryside, high, des high density just means there's more houses out there for people to travel in by car. I so you're actually parodying the planning system a bit. Is there? Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have. I'm not only an academic with respect to the planning system. I was. Uh, responsible for halls of residence at Reading and Deputy Vice Chancellor there, so I was responsible for quite a few, uh, quite a large amount of development, and I've sat in on planning committees when I've been the developer. And at Harrow, where I live, I'm chair of the planning Harrow Hill Trust, uh, objecting to things, and so I sit on planning committees and I observe what happens. Well, there I'm the objector. So I, I, that, that, that practical insight. We've all got practical. It does feed in, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, come on. But I think actually, see your example, and it comes back actually to the point of anyway, your example of your housing estate, which is it five miles from somewhere with 800 metres from a bus stop. Yeah. Actually, I suspect if I was the transport authority, I would put a part, I, I would put the bus stop rather closer. And that, and, and that, that yeah, it just still only goes once an hour. Okay, so you might actually increase it because actually what you what you're seeing, and, and, and there are transport plans for developments now, and they would they, they would look at the way that uh, this development was planned and actually um, 
make it happen. And it's that, and they do. I've seen a lot of examples where they do make it happen. Now, whether they work is another matter, and that's what I was, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. I think, I mean, some of the discussion around that issue is that they work for those types of specific journals. Yeah, well, that's but the problem. the issue is that that is only one of your five journeys of the day, exactly. and it, they don't work for the other four. And they don't work when your 17-year-old wants to take a job which starts at 6am, and yeah. all of those sorts of issues. Sure. But it's incredibly easy to be, be negative about, about the potential. Yeah. And I suppose that what I would like to see is, is the diagram with employment density on there rather than population density. Yeah. Um, that could produce a quite different... Uh, I, I mean, we're arguing, yeah. implying, but we think employment density would show some useful... We know. We know. We know. So, so and when we looked, well, I looked at um, the British data, the National Travel Survey and the census, that urban formed the sense of the balance between core and periphery and out mm -hmm. within city regions, the distribution of employment and the population and so on, and the internal densities. The only thing which really made a difference was concentration of mm -hmm. yeah, So there's, a, there's a, yeah, absolutely common sense that people are the same is the only thing you can demonstrate as having a significant impact on total energy emissions within city regions. Red herring is this housing stuff, which has been lots of been taken out of the, the new Mulcamba. The other is buried in New Mulcamba to some extent. Because you do obviously do have more concentration of formal average within the highways and the cities they're talking about. It's just not unpacked. And, it's, and it works primarily because of motor switch. Yeah. Because, yeah. because it makes it possible to use public more by can't remember when the Israeli piece, um, I can't even remember which journal it's in. It's about 2003. Whether that includes employment density, so I can't remember what that data's in. They, they've got practically everything in there, you know, as to where it is, what the densities are, etc., etc. Um, and which is how they can get to, you know, sort of circumferential journalism and some of these other So it's a very sophisticated piece, and it's just going into the base. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I wonder, uh, perhaps it's been done already, but it occurs to me that if um, you want to win the argument for group, uh, building on green belt, one way of doing it would be to sort of come up with a, you know, a vision for what a green belt might, the, the sort of immunity value that you know, might create through the extra um, income that you need know, for building the green belt. So it's a positive vision, particularly which recovers the original vision of the green belt, which is, which is a lot of it was about unity, which you say has been lost. Has anyone done that? Are there? Well, Katie Barker actually in her report said what we ought to have is more development sort of within green belts so that the, amen that the amenities space was available and there would be sort of green wedges. The point is in Britain, all you've got to do is say, I want to build on a piece of green belt and let you. Um, I mean, Nick Bowles, yes. who, who actually was head of policy exchange, yeah. and I wrote about affordable housing, etc. Um, it, it was Mr. Planning now. Uh, yeah. I noticed when he did his piece, lost his temper with Simon Jenkins on Newsnight in November, was uh, you know, the care for us, that was not building on green belt, it's on green areas, not the green belt. Where the other green areas were was not absolutely clear, and I've seen it before the last time.
I, I, I still, I, mean, I, I just think this is sort of a piece of work to be done, which are actually sort of, you know, showing how, how developing that vision, I think, would be very, very persuasive. Having yeah. a lot more traction with the public than actually some of this, some of this rather technocratic. No, 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 well, I, you know, I, I, I started off on a more general thing and then got waylaid by Newman and Kenwood. I remember a flat later, and I remember having this book on the table, and I kept on sort of, you know, and then sort of, oh, no, just a minute. <laughs> sort of for about ten days, I was back and forth with this book to check what they actually said. Does that make sense? You know? <coughs> so is the problem the emotive name in the green belt? Yes, yes. change it to the oh, town yes. expansion belt, and we're off. That's the yes. only problem. There's also very substantial asset values locked up in the ownership of the houses in the green belt. Yeah. So, I was going to sort of cite the uh, National Ecosystem Evaluation Report uh, 2011, was it? Um, I mean, that, that, that did the biggest study yet of the value of the rebirth. And as far as the social value of the rebirth, that is, value of the rebirth, people who live in the rebirth, it was zero. But there was a substantial amount of value associated with people who owned houses in the rebirth. One of the things about British countryside is, I mean, I, I walk, so I visit the British countryside, and I walk every weekend out in the British countryside, but I deliberately take a road to that, you know, ordinary survey map, and I avoid, you know, I don't go to the station places that everyone else goes to, and I have, will hardly meet anyone except someone walking their dogs who's alone. If there are certain places that you go to, uh, Virginia Water, Dead of the Vale, um, what is it, uh, West Wickham, Hell's Arcade. You pass it as you're driving, there's a mass of people arriving there. The point is, the British visit the countryside, but they only visit very few points of the countryside, which are always crowded when they get there, which is why they have the view that there's hardly any countryside left, because they only go to the bits which are very, very crowded. Um, I mean, the classic was um, January 2nd last year, my my daughter in Lawrence and Auburn's invited me to go to Wendover Woods. It was a nice day. My wife had died five days earlier. When did you get out of, the, out of the house? You know. So I went over out to Wendover Woods. She said, "There's a place you can park there in the cafe." Um, January second. I drove through deserted children's. I arrived. There was a 50 car car park with 150 cars. The cafe you couldn't get into. Could you go for a walk in Wendover Woods? Only if you were going to trip over, you know, dance around everybody. But of course, no, it was crowded, so as far as everyone's concerned, there's hardly any countryside left, and therefore any countryside is worth preserving. So it's a peculiar psychological situation. But not because I was, trying to, I was trying to establish the reason for the paradox, which is um, the CPRE says, you know, 80% of the British visit the countryside at least once a year. Yes, you know, but why, how is it that I never meet anyone except at these places? Because they all visit. The, the very popular spaces, and that nowhere else. So actually, 90% of the countryside is irrelevant because no one ever actually sees it. Um, but of course, you know, because they never see it, they don't realise it's there. I, I did see that we've done really well to get through an hour and a quarter without having the Greenbelt discussion as opposed to the identity. But if we're going to have a Greenbelt discussion, perhaps we should come back to your point because. I don't think it's just about renaming, although I've been trying to rename it um, badly managed scrubland for an awful long while. <laughs> uh, but uh, equally, I think an awful lot of people do not understand that the Green Belt does have a lot of assets in it. I mean, the students who are sitting at the back rather quietly, and I don't blame you really, 
How many of you really know, would expect to see buildings in the green belt? I mean, do, when you, you would. Yeah. Country yeah. But, uh, I mean, the, most people's concept of the green belt is one, it's green. And two, it doesn't have a large amount of development in it. But in fact, that is not true of, of significant parts of the green belt. So it's, it's not the green. problem it's is not green. it's neither green nor, nor is it in the It's not green. It's It's until we get to a point where people actually understand that there is significant development in the Greek government. Because they genuinely believe that they are, are keeping natural beauty. The general public's view of the Greek I've put up the five thing, you know, things mm -hmm. which are what are the reasons for the Greek Most people will ask, would say something about preserving wildlife, preserving, you know, keeping mm -hmm. land for agriculture, etc. The fact that it's all related to yeah, stopping development. But most people don't see it that way. Well, I mean, it was originally developed when we were very worried about towns bumping into one another. But it was also particularly developed. I mean, you know, the, the Scott report, etc., etc., in the 1945, 44, etc., was you know preserving land for agriculture. You know, we've just been through dig for dig, dig, dig for victory and you know new boat blockades, etc. And the whole thing was about preserving this valuable agricultural land. Now, you know, along the way, when you get to sort of 50 years, and thanks a bit to Paul and various others, um, when you get to the Rogers report, the reasons for preserving the countryside, agriculture isn't even mentioned. But most, many of the population will say, we need to preserve agriculture. Um, and, you know, but it's not actually there. So well, that's really 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 Thank <laughs> you. 
that her British countryside will be. Oh, sure. Could we perhaps for a final final comment and question come back to the original statement, which I think slightly confirmed it, uh, which was that uh, if this was true, we didn't have to do anything with our planning system because it was automatically doing it. Uh, what would you do with our planning system other than get rid of it? I mean, let's have some positive suggestions. You are seeing me? Yeah. <laughs> um, I spent so, so much of my life fighting. That's right. You've avoided, but I mean, I have been introduced at conferences as the Prince of Darkness, as far as the <laughs> conversion is concerned. Um, and there's so much economics of working out what's, you know, what's wrong that I'm going for positive economics. Um, well, actually, well, no, but, 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 well, no, actually, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm arguing from self-interest. It seems to me absolutely nuts that 90% of the country is countryside and therefore totally preservable, and about a half a percent of it is urban conservation areas, but they're brownfield sites, and, and, and therefore overripe for development. You know, so, you know, there's this sort of there's a, a, a peculiar. So another negative statement. Turn that into a positive statement. Uh, I'd allow more development in the countryside. And, and I, I do probably, I think it's on a thing onto the right. What he's obviously working towards, A, he's not going to get 3%, but he'd be happy if he got half percent, I think, um, or 1%. But he's working towards the new towns argument, um, which I think is actually, he's probably onto, that he might get away with it. You know, because A, you can get the architects on board, right? They can build new towns happily. Um, designed B, it's very specific that where the new towns where it might be. It's not as though you're permitting development all over the place, it's just this new town. And we used to have new towns, new towns were built up to the 1970s. You know, populations increased by 20, 20, 40%, whatever it is, 10%. We now need more new towns. It, it's, it's arguable. And I think probably it actually he might even get away with one or two. Yeah, can I try a different take? Because I mean, the issue starts off in a way price changes versus planning. Right? That seems to me the thing is that you can't have effective planning which frontally confronts market pressures. Right? And what you what you see around the green world is exactly this. So if you constrain it in one place, it pops up somewhere else, somewhere else less convenient. Okay? And what seems to me to be the strong argument for trying to get the prices right? relation to, to emissions and so on, is that that will undoubtedly encourage densification. Uh, and densification requires planning. You know, it's not, it's, uh, it'll put market forces going in the right direction, but it'll need organisation. Some of the organisation may be new towns, some may be females and green parts and so on. But actually you're only likely to get this in a useful way if you sort out the, the balance of market forces by, by getting the prices right. Can I, can I just take that as yeah. a kind of a final comment? And that is that one of the things that the sorry, we're talking that Newman and Ken really go on about, um, you know, Los Angeles is clearly there, yeah, they're kind of sort of the worst possible, low density, high fuels. Actually, of course, I, I know I've met the postgraduate students a couple of people um, uh, from Boston and New York, and they moved to Los Angeles. And the first time, the first time there was a serious price hike, they went out and bought a Toyota Prius. In fact, they bought two Toyota Priuses. 
because you need to if you're living in Los Angeles. And they did it very early on over the internet. We found all the Toyota Priuses in Los Angeles had gone. We found on the other side of Death Valley. And, and the guy who killed the TV film director killed himself jumping off the bridge. They found, they found his car on the bridge. It was a Toyota Prius. So if you, if you know you live in Los Angeles and you have to travel a lot because of the roads, what you buy is a car which uses very little petrol when the price is high. I mean, the, the, the sales of Japanese you know, cheap usage, low usage cars in that, those cities deserves another look by the equivalent of Newman and Kenwood to find out what actually is the, is the fuel usage now after the price hike, mm -hmm. which have occurred so that petrol and sort of gasoline is no longer as cheap in, in the States as it, as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for being